We're going to be looking at Genesis 1, 28, through just the first couple verses of chapter 2. This is God's Word. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the air and all the birds, all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that He had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. But the seventh day, God had finished the work He had been doing. So on the seventh day, He rested from all His work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it He rested from all the work of creating that He had done. This is God's Word. Let us pray together before we jump in. Father, we, um, we need Your help to make sense of this passage Uh, For some of us reading this thing, it seems irrelevant and archaic and uh, outdated. Some of us want to believe it. We just don't know what in the world it means. I pray that you would come and help us. I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come and open up this passage so that it would pierce our hearts afresh with the good news of your Son. I pray that uh, you would unclog our ears and open up our eyes and soften our hearts and teach us because we have no hope of learning apart from you helping us. So we ask that you would come and do so even now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know how your um, parents send you care packages every now and then? Well, I got a care package from my dad last year, which is just weird in and of itself. But Catherine received this package before I got home, my wife Catherine, and, uh, and, and so she gets home and, and opens this thing. And in this, care, in, in this box is a couple of pieces of random wood blocks, uh, a clump of shoelaces, and a handsaw. <laughs> and she calls me up and she's like, Matt, what in the world did your dad just send us? And I'm, you know, she's explaining to me what's in the box. I, I have no idea. That doesn't make any sense. So I eventually get home and I open up the box and sure enough, wood blocks, shoestrings, and a handsaw is in it. And there's a little note attached. And so I read the note and it all starts to make sense because my dad had come into town to visit us about a week or two prior and he had kind of been doing this mental checklist in his head of everything that needed to be done. So he included these little wood blocks because we have this shelf that's a little, you know, slanted. So he said, just, you know, stuff those underneath the, you know, legs and it'll straighten it up. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, We had some tomato plants that we were growing and he said, wrap the shoestring around, you know, the vine to, you know, the stalk so it doesn't hurt the tomato plant. Okay, and the handsaw was because I had a um, uh, a padlock that I had locked the gate in our backyard, and I had just totally forgotten, you know, lost the key. So the handsaw was to saw open this padlock. But you know, it all it all eventually kind of made sense after we read the thing, and it was like, oh, this is you know actually sweet and thoughtful. Although when we first opened, it was like, this is pretty random. Genesis 1, right after God creates people in His image that we talked about last week, the very next verse, uh, we see God giving His people gifts. He gives them food. He gives them, and we spill into chapter 2, He's giving them uh, sustenance and uh, a marriage companion. He gives them boundaries, and then He gives them 
a job. He gives them work. When you first read that, you're like, really? Work? That's, you know, that's the gift, thanks, for the job. But, you know, once, once we'll begin to unpack this package, not package, but passage, I hope that you'll be able to see that it does start to make sense. At first you look at it and you're kind of like looking at the open box and it's like, work, really? Thanks. But then once you start to piece it together, it starts to make sense. Because whether or not you like it or not, work is built into your college experience. This is the question that you're asking yourself. What am I going to do with my life? What am I going to major in so that I can do something for a career once I get out of here? Work is kind of built into the system of everything that we do here. And so what I'm going to propose is that we have to develop a functional theology of work. We have to develop a theology of work and be able to look at our work through the lens of the Bible. So, okay, we're going to begin to unpack what I mean by that by looking at three elements of work specifically. The nature of work, the value of work, and the threat of work. The nature, the value, and the threat. Okay, so first, the nature of work. There's a broad dimension of this, and then there's a very specific dimension of this. So I'm going to start broadly. Right after God creates man in his image, what does he say? This is verse 28. It says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. Rule over everything. Multiplication and dominion. That's what he's saying. Multiply, fill the earth, and have dominion over it, rule over it. These are two sides of the same coin. Multiply, right, meaning procreate and populate. <laughs> fill the earth with people. That, that, that can mean both uh, physical people, populate it with babies, and you know, sp- have spiritual descendants. Uh, preach the gospel and, and uh, bring people into the kingdom of God that way. So fill the earth and have dominion. What, is, what does that mean, have dominion over the earth? It basically means to have authority over an area of the planet. God gives you an area over uh, the planet of which he says, you have jurisdiction over this. I want you to rule over it, oversee the resources, and do something good with it. Multiplication and dominion. This never really made sense to me why this was important, but the, because this is what uh, theologians and scholars call the cultural mandate. The, cultural, the, the mandate to advance culture. Because think about it. Adam and Eve are placed in a garden, a nice, peaceful, cultivated, lovely garden. But they're not told to stay there, are they? They're, they're saying there is a planet of wild, uncharted territory that that God wants us to fill and to populate and to develop godly cultures, to create uh, godly cultures and utilize technology so that civilization begins to look on earth like it looks in heaven, where people are obeying God's will and it is filled with justice and goodness and happiness and kindness and generosity for each other. This is what God is wanting civilization to look like. Move out into the world. That's the broad dimension of what, it, what the nature of work. But specifically, uh, there's a specific aspect to it. And I didn't put it in your little uh, handout, but it's, it's um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. And it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. God puts humanity in the garden to work it and to take care of it, to be a gardener. 
Man's first job was to garden. Think about this. What is gardening? Gardening, I've never really done much gardening, but I would assume that gardening means something like this. You're taking the raw materials, the, the, the already existing uh, stuff, and rearranging it in a certain way to make humanity flourish. You take uh, the soil and you, you cultivate in a certain sense that gives it uh, a richness with the, with the nutrients. You take the seed from you know, this plant and put it in this spot and you oversee it and you, you know, care for it and you water it. And what happens? Plants grow and food is produced. Beauty is maintained. Gardening. Why in the world am I talking about this? Because one pastor put it like this. All of work is a gardening. Everything you do, the nature of work itself is gardening. Think about it like this. What does an artist do? An artist takes the raw materials, if it's clay or if it's paint, and rearranges it in a certain way to bring form and order and beauty so that it is enabling human flourishing. We need beauty, we need art, we need uh, other people's insights to be able to flourish as human beings. What does a uh, garbage man do or a garbage woman do? What do they do? They are rearranging the raw material that's actually there trash and moving it to another spot. We need them to do that. If they didn't do that, we would not function. We would not, humanity would not flourish. What does an accountant do? They're taking the raw data, the raw numbers, and are rearranging them and making you know, reports and making it readable for people who don't know what they're talking about and, and, and are enabling human flourishing so that we know what in the world's going on with our finances. All of work is gardening. It all fits. It's all part of uh, cultivating the earth specifically. One author put it like this. What is important is that we are open to the bigger picture where we sense we are a piece of a puzzle and that, we, and, what, and that what we do fits and contributes into the whole. Without the miller, no flour. Without the baker, no bread. Without the grocer, no access to the bread. The very nature of work is rearranging the pieces that are already there to enable human flourishing. Do you see your work like that? Do you see what you're going to be doing as part of this bigger picture, as part of this bigger puzzle where you are contributing to civilization itself? That's the nature of work. Some of you may be like, okay, that makes sense. I get that that's what work is, but work still sucks. I still don't want to do it. It's still not fun to do. Well, uh, I understand that. Work is hard, but I want to look at the second element here. The value of work. When God gives people a job, you realize that this happens before the fall into sin. This is all before sin ever shows up in the world. And therefore, work is good. Work is intrinsically valuable. You could even say this is what we were created to do, to work. Look at verse 28 again. It says, God blessed them and said to them, you know, here's your job description. It doesn't say God cursed them. And said to them, here's your job description. God, It is God's blessing to give us work. And then look down in uh, verse 31, chapter 1, verse 31. It says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. God looks back over everything he's created, everything he has established. Cell phones, uh, uh, <laughs> plants, work. And he says, it is good. And that includes work. And that includes embarrassment. <laughs> Think of it this way. Robert Lupton 
Lupton, wrote this book called Compassion, Justice, and the Christian Life. And in this book, he is critiquing the way that we typically uh, take care of the poor, the, the way that we typically interact with poverty. And here's what he says. He says, basically, the lowest form of charity in caring for the poor is to give them a gift with them knowing that you were the one that gave them the gift. Because, so he argues, and you can choose to agree or disagree with him, he says when you give somebody a gift, you know, they take that gift, if it's food or something, they consume it, but then they have to return to you for more help. And this dynamic is created where you're the one in control and they're the ones who are needy. You're the healer, they're the patient. So you give them something, they use it, but they have to keep coming back for more. He says that's the lowest form of charity. And he says that the highest form of charity is to give somebody a job. Because what does that do? It's, it, it infuses them with dignity and with respect. And it says, you have something to contribute. You have something to do. You have something, some way that we can benefit from you. So this whole dynamic is, is, is taken apart. By giving somebody a job, you are actually giving them dignity and respect. And so here's what God is doing in Genesis 1. He condescends and he gives us a job out of utter kindness and generosity. And if this is true, that work is good, then that means we have to think about work differently and we have to think about vocation differently. We have to think about work differently. This means that all jobs can glorify God. All legal jobs can glorify God. I was at a a church this one time during a missions conference. And, you know, it's one of these weekend things where we're all talking about missions and uh, the pastor gets up there and the last night he says, uh, you know, he's been talking and he says, anybody who feels like they're called to be a missionary, I want you to come up front. Come kind of gather up front. And so, of course, because he's been talking about missions, there's lots of people that come, you know, walk up front and stand up front. And he didn't say this. He didn't explicitly say this, but what he was implying was, you see these people up here? They get it. They really understand the gospel. And you people out there are lukewarm. These are the people that are sold out for Jesus. Do you know what Jesus did for the first 30 years of his life? He worked with his hands. He built stuff out of wood. He was a carpenter. According to this pastor, Jesus himself wasn't sold out for Jesus for the first 30 years of his life. Did you realize what this means? I mean, th- this, is a, this is a dysfunctional view of work. Biblically, all legal work is good and can glorify God and is freeing. You can do what you were created to do. Not all of you were created to be missionaries. Not all of you uh, to, be, to be sold out for Jesus may look for you like going into uh, the insurance world. You know, being sold out for Jesus is not equal being a missionary. One uh, author put it this way, spirituality is a down-to-earth matter. Spiritual growth is evidenced more by the smell of sweat than by the aroma of holiness, and more by the calluses on our hand than the growing of wings. You can glorify God by being an insurance salesman, or a doctor, or a student, or a stay-at-home mom, or a busboy, or whatever. We have to think about work differently, because work is created good. But we have to think about vocation differently as well. Vocation comes from the uh, Latin word where uh, uh, meaning call or summons. It's the same kind of root word where we get the word voice, you know, vocal. You can kind of see the 
root in there. Uh, so God calls you into a certain area of work. He puts you over one area of his kingdom and says, this is your little garden. This is your area. Work it and take care of it. He calls us. So how do we listen? How do we hear God's call for our lives? I think there's two ways. We, we, we listen for what we're good at and we listen for what makes us happy. I think it's that simple. We, we, we look at what our gifts are. What, what did God gift us to do? You, every one of you is gifted in a certain way that, that God has intended for you to utilize those gifts and do that in a specific field. And, and you may be thinking, okay, well, I know what's going to make me happy. It's going to be making lots of money. That's what's going to really make me happy. But you may get in a job that makes lots of money, but if it's not utilizing your gifts, you will be miserable. And you're not really called to that. You're called to utilize your gifts, whatever that may be. The task for you in your 20s, this area, you know, this age group, you know, 18 and up, 17 and up, y'all, this part of your life is to ask the question, who am I? Not, what am I going to do? You have to first understand, okay, how did God create me? What do I enjoy doing? What did he gift me to do? That's the question you need to be asking yourself. Not, what am I going to do? Because you realize how messed up this system is. I know every one of you come in and you feel forced to choose your life's career when you're 18 years old right out of high school. So, okay, you pick this you know, major, you go four years studying it, and you're spit out into the real world, and I'm supposed to pursue a career based off of a decision that I made when I was 18 with my advisor and my mom overlooking my shoulder. I mean, this is a messed up scenario. But what if we looked at work as vocation? And said that God is calling me into something. And it's not just something to occupy myself, not just something to earn money, not just something to do to get until I, you know, until I can get to the weekend. But what if God is calling me into something to fit into the bigger piece of the pie and, and, uh, use it as a way to serve God and to serve my neighbor? We have to start thinking about work differently. We have to start thinking about vocation differently because work is valuable. So the, nature of work, the value of work, and last, the threat, the threat of work. Let's look in verse uh, 31 again through the end. It says, God saw all that he had made and was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Uh, But the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. God works for six days and then he rests. The pattern here of God's creative activity of working six days and then resting in one is actually the core basis for the reason why we are commanded to rest in one of the Ten Commandments. Do you know that the fourth commandment is a command for us to rest? And it's based on this passage, based on this pattern that, that sets up. It reads this, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Okay, why? And then it says, Because in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh so God's creative work of, rest, uh, of working on six days and then resting on the seventh is the pattern for us. It is built into the rhythm of our week. Work six, rest one. So what is the threat then? The threat 
is pouring so much of yourself into your work that you can no longer rest. And to elevate your work to such an ultimate level that it is the thing that drives you. It is the thing that defines you. It is the thing that gives you life and gives you meaning. It gives you purpose. It gives you an identity. When you have made your work this, then you can no longer rest. Because you look at yourself and you say, okay, the reason that I am good is because I get good grades. The reason that I'm special, the reason I'm different is because I'm good at basketball. The, the reason that I am set apart is because fill in the blank. I work really hard. I'm, I'm responsible. I'm not like these lazy people. And you, and, and you take these things, you take your work, and what you're actually doing is you are worshiping it. And you say, Matt, I don't worship work. I, I worship God. But if we looked deep into your heart, we would see that the thing that you are bowing down to is your accomplishments, your resume, your work ethic. It is the thing that drives you and fills you and gives you life and it gives you meaning. So what is the solution? How do we dismantle the threat? How do we fight against the threat? We rest. When I was in college, um, one of my friends decided... We, we had heard this thing where if you stayed awake for 72 straight hours, you would be legally considered insane. Have any of you, have any of you all heard this? I don't know. Suppose, have you heard this? Okay. So, there's, so he took it upon himself to do this personal experiment. And, and we, kinda, we brought the whole dorm floor in on it. And we were, kind of, we were all kind of deciding, okay, he's going to last you know, 48 hours. No, he's going to last 63 hours. He's going to last you know, whatever. And so he starts doing this personal experiment. And so, okay, day one. Easy, no problem. Day two, you can start to see him degrading. He's, you know, he's starting to have the puffy eyes. He's starting to be just a little curt and short with people. He's, you know, he's slowly disintegrating. By the time he gets to the late 60s of hours, the low 70s, uh, he is a train wreck. He, he is a total jerk to all of his friends. He had a whole conversation in his dorm room with uh, a girl from class who wasn't there. <laughs> and then he's, he literally is he's hallucinating. He's, you know, at one point, he's playing a video game you know, where you're like, moving the character around, and he kind of zones out. And you know, he like, had the character in the corner walking when he, <laughs> when he came to. So basically, he lasted like 74, 75 hours. He made it and uh, you know, surpassed all of our expectations, even though we eventually said, like, you've got to go to sleep. <laughs> so he eventually crashes, and you know, it takes him like three or four days to even recover from this because you know, he sleeps like 15 straight hours and gets up and then crashes back for another 15. It, was just, it totally ruined his week, his <laughs> whole, whole week ruined in college. Now, what's the point? Why in the world am I talking about that? It's because rest is just as important as your work. Rest is just as important as your work. This is, this is the way that God built the rhythm of your, your week. Work six, rest one. And so do you know what I think this means? I think it means that we need to have a Sabbath. We need to keep Sunday holy, as it says. And you can argue about this with me, but I think... You do not need to be doing schoolwork on Sunday. I think your calling right now is to be a student. And if this is your work, 
then you should keep one day holy. Set it apart. Use it for a time of worship with God's people, for recreation, for refreshment, for reorientation, for rest. So, okay, Matt, that's the solution. We take a day off and we stop work and we rest on Sunday. Well, yes and no. You can put off schoolwork and you can take a day off on Sunday and that might help. And you may think that you're getting rest, but the thing that I'm talking about is much deeper. Because think about it. Where does this drive to work come from? Where does this impulse that says, I'm going to take my work and I'm going to use it in a way that gives me satisfaction and fulfillment and is driving me and is defining me. Where does that come from? What is it in your heart that is grabbing onto work like that? I want to argue it comes from a heart that fails to believe the gospel in that moment. It fails to believe the gospel. It, it, it comes from a heart that says what Jesus did is not enough, and therefore I have to now prove myself. I have to validate my existence. I have to work out of utter insecurity to prove that I am significant, that I am something, and this work is exhausting. It's exhausting. This is why when people ask you how you are doing, you answer them by telling them what you are doing. You know, you come up and say, hey, how are you? How's it going? Uh, I've got two papers due to tomorrow. I've got a test later this week. I'm, I'm super busy. I'm you know, super busy. Why do we do that? Why do we feel like we have to validate our existence by saying, I'm so busy. I've maxed out my schedule to the max so that I can feel significant, so that I can feel like I am somebody. And this work of, of, of making yourself feel significant and making yourself feel important, it's never enough. It never stops. You always have to do more. You always have to keep going. It's never finished. So, okay, take Sunday off and stop working. But you know what will happen? You'll be restless. And you'll be antsy. And you won't be able to sit still. And you'll be thinking about your work. You'll be thinking about the, the list of the stuff that you have to do once you actually go do your work. You'll be working in your head while you're not working. And this, this, uh, this drive is exhausting. It's never finished. It's never enough. The, the, the drive to validate your own existence is never finished. You can't just turn it off and expect it to go away like that. It's like slamming your car into park when you're driving 75 miles down a, down a highway. It's just going to destroy the whole thing. There has to be something in your soul that's so at peace that it experiences the deep, profound rest that Scripture talks about. What is that? How do you get that? How do I get this rest? Well, look again with me in verse 31. It says, God saw all that He had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. And thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. But the seventh day, by the seventh day, God had finished the work He had been doing. God finishes His creational work, and He rests. He looks back over it and says, It is finished, and it is good. What does Jesus say on the cross? He says, it is finished. What is finished? What is he talking about? John 17, 4 says this, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. What work is he accomplishing? He is accomplishing his people's salvation so that everything necessary to do has been done. There's nothing left to do. He has accomplished it all. He says it is finished. 
There's a pastor in New York City named Tim Keller, and he really kind of opened this thing up for me, and he puts it like this. He says, when we see Jesus on the cross, what do we see him doing? He is writhing. He is calling out. He is crying. Why is he so restless up there? Why is he so restless on the cross? And then Tim Keller kind of points out this verse in Isaiah 57:20, and it just blew me away. It says this, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest. Whose waves cast up mud and mire, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. There's no peace for the wicked, no rest for the sinful. So why is Jesus the one experiencing all this cosmic restlessness and unrest? Infinite unrest, infinite restlessness. What's going on? Jesus is putting him in our place. God is putting Jesus in our place. So on the cross, God is making him experience the infinite restlessness. He is taking it all. He is doing the work of our salvation. He is accomplishing it all so that when it is finished, he can look look back and say, it is finished. And after the fact, what does he say? He can say this, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. What does this mean? This means when you base your life on Jesus, when when you make Jesus the center of your world, the center of your existence, the center of your story, only then can you say, because of Jesus, the work is finished. Only because of Jesus, I can say, I no longer have to keep working. I no longer have to keep validating my existence. I no longer have to keep proving to myself and proving to the world that I am somebody and I am significant and you can finally stop and rest and experience what Scripture is talking about. And in fact, that rest actually drives you to do your work better. Better than you did before. Because before you were using your work in a way to satisfy you. You were using your work in a way to make yourself feel significant. But when you, are, when you know that you have Jesus, and He is your significance, He is your righteousness, then you can say, I no longer have to use work this way. I will work and I will work hard and I will, and I will pursue God's glory through my work, but I don't need it like I needed it before. I don't need it to be somebody because I have Jesus. And you have to keep these last two points together, the value of work and the threat of work. Because some of you don't love work enough. You want to sleep through class and play video games all day and not go to school, and you don't love work enough. And so the value of work challenges your apathy. But yet the threat of work protects you from idolatry. You see how there's, there's a balance there. Some of you love work too much. And the threat challenges that and draws you back into the center. Some of you don't love work enough, and the value of it pushes you back into the center. So how do you keep these two things balanced? How do you keep these two together? You develop a functional theology of work that is centered on the gospel. Because the gospel affirms the value of work because Jesus worked, and Jesus is perfect, but yet it protects you from the threat of work because it says Jesus' work is sufficient. All that was necessary to be accomplished has been done. I want to close with this story. You remember the story out of Luke 10 when Jesus goes to visit Mary and Martha. And Martha, you remember, is hard at work and she is caught up with all the distractions of everything to be done and she says this, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. And Mary is, you know, contently sitting at Jesus' feet. And so how does Jesus respond? He says, Martha, Martha. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Only one thing is needed. 
and Mary has chosen what is better. Martha is building her identity on her work, and as a result, she is overwhelmed and stressed out and pushy and rude. And Mary is building her identity on Jesus, and she is content, and she is at peace, and she is at rest. Which one are you? Are you more like Martha? Are you more like Mary? Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, I pray that um, we would begin to taste the rest of what your scripture talks about. The deep, infinite peace that is available for us in your Son. I pray, Father, would you give us the grace to repent of our work and come to you and find grace and find forgiveness and find healing and find rest. Transform the way that we think about our work. We pray we we are desperate for you too because unless you do, we are going to be workaholics and drive ourselves into the ground and we'll destroy our families down the road and we'll destroy everything around us. But I pray, Father, protect us from that by piercing our heart with the gospel, pressing it deep and changing us from the inside out. We do pray and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.